Welcome to the How to Handicap the NCAA Tournaments podcast. I'm your host, RJ Bell, and this is one of the How to Handicap series of podcasts that we do for special times of the year. I'm joined by Marco D'Angelo, GM of Picks at Pregame.com and 29 years in the business handicapping, and Vegas Runner, a genuine Las Vegas professional batter who lives off his winnings. We have a ton of information, so we're going to get straight to it. Okay, conference tournaments have just happened. Some teams have won, clearly, and some teams have lost. Marco, tell me how we look at winners of the conference tournaments. Well, the winners in the conference tournaments obviously are going to come in here with momentum. The thing that you got to look at with some of these is in these big conferences, um, you know, the Big East is a, a conference that's noted over the years where the teams beat each other up because of the physical play, and that's been one of the knocks on uh, the Big Ten over the years in in tournament plays when they go outside of the uh, their conference, they don't do as well. And it's a theory that the teams beat up on each other, that they're tired at the end of the year. And when you play four games in a conference like that in a four-day period and then have to come back in four days or five days, it can leave a team empty. Okay, so there's a there's a physical element to it, but you, you do have, even if you play on Sunday, those three days off, but is there a psychology to it for the winning team? Well, they're obviously going to come in with momentum. They're going to be happy about the win. Sometimes that win can be, you know, too big. I mean, you have a situation where uh, if a team lost both games during the regular season to the team that they met in the conference championship game, and then they turned around and and won the conference championship, that could have a little bit of a letdown because it was such a big game rivalry-wise. Even though this is the bigger stage, you know, you still play your conference rivals every year, and, and that's big. So you got to look at some of those factors. Okay, so we got the physical fatigue. We've got the psychological potential letdown. I think that's the case, especially if they're a big favorite in the first round of the NCAAs. NCAAs, you're going to be up in general if it's going to be a close game. But if you're laying 15 points, you're a little bit tired, and you just won the conference tournament, you might not come out gangbusters. Another factor is that a lot of the betters in the NCAAs are only betting the NCAAs. Maybe they're betting the conference tournaments, maybe a couple games during the year, but now it's March Madness. So these lines are being made specifically for the public this time of year, and the public just watched with their very own eyes this team win the conference tournament. So they're going to be highly valued, which means that going against them is going to have value. Now, Vegas Runner, when most teams lose coming in, as Marco made that point uh, right before we went on air, most teams lose and don't win their conference tournaments. How do you look at those teams? The significance, I think, that first you have to establish, was the team expected to win their conference? Or weren't they expected? I think that's the difference. Because some of these teams that weren't expected, they have to get up every day, four straight days, to win their conference tournament. And for them, that was a huge accomplishment and many times they're happy to get into the dance. That was their only chance to get in. They had to win the tournament. So for them, I think fatigue plays a much, has a, a bigger, you know, it means a lot in that instance as opposed to a team where is expected to win your, you know, teams that are the so, so elite in the conference that it's an easy 
So the surprise you're saying the surprise teams winning the conference tournament are have a better chance of a letdown because it was such a victory for them. Exactly. That's exactly it. Where, where with a team that's expected to win, yes, they played four games in four days, but they're the cream of the crop. They're the elite of that conference. They didn't have to get up much for them games. They've played these teams. They've beaten them through the season. It was just the next step in the process of getting to March Madness. Okay, so the teams that do lose, how do you look at them? The, it, once again, it depends on where they stood in the conference. So if it's a team that is expected to win their conference tournament and they get knocked out in their first game or their second game, now they have to sit back for the next five or six days and read about how disappointing they are, listen to how terrible they've played, and I think they have that extra motivation to go in there and prove something. And I think you have an edge with these teams because, again, what we're doing is we're saying these are good teams to begin with. These aren't your average team. I'm talking about your elites, your top one and two teams in each conference that are expected to challenge for the championship game that get knocked out your first or second day. And because of that loss based upon the public perception of getting interested at the conference tournament time, these teams are now maybe not as good as they thought, and thus the lines maker, the, the, the odds are being adjusted lower or against those teams. Exactly. So now you're getting value on a good team, which really gives you an even better edge, I believe. Which is rested and focused from a lot of practice. Exactly. Okay, so a takeaway here is that in general, if you can have a good team that lost early – you, pr- you may have an undervalued team that's going to be hyper-motivated in the first round. Okay, now, Marco, I mentioned what you were saying about most teams don't win their tournament. You being a situational handicapper, how do you gauge the momentum of those teams? Well, there's two kinds of teams that are going to come in off losses. There's going to be teams that limp into a tournament that maybe have lost four or five of their last six games, and those teams are going to get a lot of talk on on the media shows and the selection shows. Do they deserve to be here? Do they deserve the seed they got? Those type of teams I think you've got great value with because Vegas knows that the public's listening to all those shows. And they're going to adjust the lines because people are going to believe, hey, this team doesn't belong. So you're going to get a benefit of the line and you're going to get a motivated team that, I mean, it's human nature. If somebody tells you you don't belong somewhere, you're going to work harder to show that you do. So I think that's a psychological advantage. The other, to elaborate a little bit more on what VR said about a team that maybe gets one win and then loses in their conference tournament and it's a good team i think that's a great situation and i'm going to give you a a horse analysis it's very quick and whenever we had a horse that had a big stake race coming up we honestly and i you know i'll deny this if i get called in but we would tell our driver just keep the horse on the on the rail that start before the stake race. All we wanted was a little tightener. We didn't want to overextend the horse. And that's the thing about running deep in a conference tournament. Sometimes you leave your team with the gas tank empty. And by just having that first round game and then losing, you got your tightener. So it's like a scrimmage. And then you go into the, the big dance fresh. Okay, now... What you're saying is, and and actually you surprised me with what you said, you're saying it's one thing to lose a conference tournament game, but if you actually ended the season and limped to the finish line, you look at that as an advantage because in theory, okay, the public's down on them, the line's going to be adjusted accordingly. But at what point is this team just not a good team? 
if you're limping to the finish line, three, you know, you lose four or five, and then you lose in the conference tournament. Uh, is that a team we really want to back? Well, the situation is again. I'm a situational handicapper, psychological, and I go into the heads of the teams. Even if they limp to the finish line, when they start this. The, the tournament, every team starts zero and zero. It doesn't matter what you did down the stretch. You just have to win X number of games in a row to win the national championship. So it's like a rebirth, and the team gets rejuvenated for you know the run. You can forget what they did down the stretch. Okay, so and that, that's a good point. We talked about that in the conference tournament, uh, How to Handicap podcast. You can see all these podcasts or listen to them all at pregamepodcast.com. And what we said was, hey, it's a new life. If you win a couple games in the conference tournament, you go to the NCAAs. That happens every year. So I think what we're saying is if you have a team that seemingly limped to the finish line and you can identify why they limped, and that's something, maybe it was a couple tough road games. Maybe it was an injury. Now they lose in the conference tournament. Now everyone's down on them, but they do have a sense of a fresh start. And maybe it was a deceptive result at the end of the year. You may have real value there. Absolutely. Now, Vegas Runner, you talk about teams that are peaking. Now, let's talk about that coming into the tournament. And and I want you to talk about the teams that are peaking that actually won their tournament versus can we have a team that's truly peaking if they don't win the tournament? Exactly. You hit the nail right on the head. And that's what I wanted to talk about. A team could be peaking and playing their best basketball heading into March without winning their conference championship. Just because you didn't string along four wins in a row doesn't mean you're not peaking. How I like to evaluate a team heading into March Madness is how they did that final quarter of the season. Them all-important games heading into the conference tournament. Not as much breaking down what happened in the conference tournament because like we said in that podcast, that's its own animal. And very few times are we able to take something from that and turn a profit when the madness starts because of it. So, you know, that's the beauty of this, that we're talking about two totally different conferences. I mean, uh, tournaments. And I think we ha- you have to look at these teams that were peaking even if they didn't win their conference tournament. Teams that down the stretch started turning it on. Some of them teams that had youth, that had maybe uh, uh, two freshmen, two sophomores in their their lineup and weren't doing as well early on, although towards the end they caught fire. And that, to me, is a sign of strength. And that's a concept we've been talking about a good bit is the late season matters more, specifically because so many teams are young that a lot of these freshmen and sophomores, that last second half of that season is is a big chunk of their playing career. And how they did in the first half, maybe do, it does not matter as much. So if you have, it sounds like ideally if you have a team which is young, that got better in the second half, that is playing well but didn't win their conference tournament, thus they could relax, practice hard, and focus, you have a, a perfect storm of a team that you might expect to overperform early in the NCAAs. Marco? One thing that you can't forget, and it's something that I do look at, because you're playing teams in the NCAA tournament, unlike the conference tournament where you're playing teams – you know, basically for the third time in the same year. I will go back and look at the December games when teams played out of conference games because that's where you can get coaching value. That's coaches that can prepare for somebody they don't see three times a year. That tells you a good coach. And don't lose sight of those December games. They build character for when you're playing deep in March. Okay, so 
and again, we there's always uh, subtle ways to look at things, but I, I'm not sure your point. We're saying that the later season is more important, especially if a team is is more youthful. Now, what uh, for current form? For current form, you know, what is it about the December games we want to look at especially? Experience playing outside of your conference and for coaches being able to prepare for a team that that may be the only time that they've played them. All right, so what you're saying is that a NCAA tournament replicates an out-of-conference schedule, which is these are teams that aren't typically played with different styles and maybe that conference's style. Absolutely. That's a very good point. And, yeah, Marco's absolutely right because now with all them early season invitationals, they're set up just like the tournaments. These coaches go in not knowing who they're going to play the next day if they win tonight. So I think you're right, Marco. Taking a quick look back during that Maui Invitational and, and other such tournaments may give you an idea of, a, a, especially if it's a young coach or a coach where just that doesn't have that tournament experience, that doesn't have that record that we could look at and, and see how he's done in the past. Yes, and that, that, that really is a good point. Okay, now, Marco touched on it, but let's talk about a little bit about the teams that, that the public is saying shouldn't be there. One group of those teams are the ones that limp to the finish line, but even those teams could get a 6-7-8 seed. Specifically, let's talk for a minute about the 12 seeds or maybe even the 11 seeds, the last at-large teams, that always there's a controversy, should this team have gotten in or not. And historically, those teams have done very well because the public's talking about maybe they don't belong here, which means the line's being affected by that negativity, which also means these teams are really motivated to prove the public wrong, and those teams are usually a good uh, play-on team. I agree with you, and I think one of the, and you're the numbers guy, and I don't have that in front of me, but I can remember reading in past years from other people that are big stat guys that the 5-12 matchup of seeds is one of the ones that almost every year produces an upset out of that pairing. It's been about the last... uh Eight years, or, or in, let's say the last decade, it's been about forty percent to twelve seeds of one. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, especially and, and I think motivation uh, based upon uh, being undervalued or under uh, respected by the public probably has a lot to do with that. Okay, let's talk about days off because another factor from conference tournament to the NCAAs is some of the smaller conferences, especially, have upwards of ten plus days off. Vegas runner, how does that affect the team? It's huge, especially in basketball. Just one of them games where you have to be in sync and clicking on all cylinders. Um, and the time off just it can't be good for anybody, especially when you're looking at some of these teams that are having two weeks off and now have to prepare and get ready for a tournament. I think that's just too much time off. They really have to do something because it gives these schools a huge disadvantage going in. I mean, just as we look at teams that might have played on Sunday as possibly having a disadvantage playing again on Thursday, I think these schools that played three weeks ago their final game are at a much bigger disadvantage as a team that just may be a little bit exhausted. Okay, so to some degree, the time off to to a certain amount of days is good because it allows for practice, allows for rest. Right. Once you reach the seven-day mark, and you said three weeks, I think the, the most days you'll um, see— 10 or 11. 13. Well, yeah, you'll see 13 two, or 14. Yeah, so, two weeks. Two so weeks. you're looking at like 14 weeks, and, and really it's just a matter of being rusty. These teams are going to be rusty. Is that what we can agree on? Oh, absolutely. That, that's, that's all it's going to come down now, to. Where you can find 
value is if you get one of those teams that had the extended layoff and gets through the first game and it, they just squeak by, you got tremendous value with that team in the next game. Because you think in the first game that they had a big disadvantage, the fact they still won said this team's better than we think. Absolutely, and the public is going to look at that team. Well, here's you know, in generally the smaller one, the smaller conferences are the ones that played early that have the biggest layoff. So you're going to have the public say, "Oh, here's a mid, you know, mid-major team that really is not that good, and they were lucky to even get by, and now they're going to get blown out in the next game." And I'll I'll look for those teams. The historical stats actually back that up. If you take the 12 seeds and the 10 seeds that win in round one, in round two they actually win. More more than half of the time. And clearly they're going to be underdogs in those games. Yeah, that's what I say. You're saying straight up. Yes. Win, yeah, they, so. they win half of the time, more than half straight up if and they win that first game. Points, yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a very good uh, fact, actually. I'm learning stuff as we go here, taking notes. You and so. me both. <laughs> okay, now let's talk not just about days off leading into the tournament um, first round, but let's talk about the way these rounds are because it does change things. There's six possible games, and but there are two a week for three weeks. So you have the A round and the B round in week one, the A round and B round in week two, the A round and B round in week three. The A and B are two different rounds because in the A round, you have four or five days to get ready for that. And then in the B round, you have two days. So we really want to think differently about that A and B round, whereas when you have the A round, you have extra coaching preparation, and some coaches can take advantage of that. Marco, you want to talk about that? A point that I'm going to bring out with that first game, and this goes to the games where you have the big spreads on the first round games, which obviously the A round games are going to be the biggest spreads of the tournament because you're going to have the biggest disparity in seeds. A lot of times the good coaches are going to split their preparation time. Half of it's going to be on the opponent that they're playing, and the other half's going to be preparation for who they might play because they know they're going to get by that first round. And that's where sometimes you get these big dogs that hang around because the coach is sending a message to the, to his players that, you know, we're really not taking this team seriously if we start looking at our next opponent already to get the added prep time. Okay, so on one hand, you're saying that the teams that, that have a, an easy walkover game in the first game have an advantage in the second game. That's an interesting point. And, and the way the first seeds typically advance in the second round, that's 87% of the time, speaks to that with the one versus eight or nine matchup. So that speaks to that. But in general, would you agree, and, and VR, you can step in here, is – in the A round when there's more time that coaching matters even more. That's what I wanted to say. For myself, this discussion, the it all comes down to coaching. Because when we look at the A round, like you said, pretty much you know who your opponent is going in every time to the A round. But in the B round, you don't. And I think that's the key. Um, coaching, coaching, coaching is what this is all going to boil down to when you're talking about March Madness and days in between and preparation time and because you got to remember during the season these players are used to playing two times a week getting three four days in between and so going from the elite eight to the final four having that time to time off I don't think is a big deal for them I think the biggest issue is the coaching how he's going to prepare his team for the upcoming games and that coaching is more important in the a round because of the extra time which leads to I believe 
there's two reasons to really look at the unders in the A round. So in general, uh, when there's public lines, which are R for the NCAAs, you want to look under because the public likes to bet over. I think in the A round, there's two reasons to do that. One is the coaching. If you have four days or so to prepare, you're going to be better able to stop that offense. It helps the defenses with the extra preparation. Number two, most of these games are going on in big, spacious arenas that these teams are unfamiliar with. And that first game in the A round with the different shooting backgrounds and all that and the different rims, it takes a while to get used to that. Come the second game, they're more used to that arena and there's less time. So you want to look unders in the first games and not necessarily overs in the second games, but probably be more neutral. Yeah, I think you would probably end up having more overs in the second one simply because you don't have the preparation time to actually break the two teams down that you could have possibly played. You you finish your game, you go home, the coach starts looking at, you know, film from the games that played, you know, the second game that night of who they're going to play. They got three or four hours to, you know, come up with their game plan and they're going to bed and starting to practice the next day in preparation. You got one day to prepare. So you're not going to have that huge advantage with the defensive efforts in that. And you're going to be tired. Well, not so, and that's the question. I'm not sure I agree with that because one of the things we talk, you're, you're going to be more tired than you were in the A round. Agreed. But my next point was going to be that depth is not as important, no matter if it's the A or the B round, simply because you do have the one full day off. And in the conference tournaments, one of the things we talked about was some teams play four straight days. Depth becomes very important. I think there's two reasons depth is not as important in the NCAAs. One is the day off, no matter what even in the B round. And number two, there's so many, there's even more TV timeouts. They're longer and the teams have more of a chance to rest and you don't have to go as deep into your bench. Though I would agree with you, they're going to be less rested in the B round uh, than they are in the A round. Yes. It's not rare to see coaches have six-man rotations in the March Madness and seven-man top rotations. So I, I agree with you there, RJ, that they're they're more rested with the TV timeouts. We take that stuff for granted, but it, it, it plays a big role. They're used to playing in games sometimes in them smaller conferences without much television timeouts. That's a good point. Now, shifting gears, Vegas Runner, tell me your thoughts on travel and the distance from the campus to the actual game site and how the travel in the A and B rounds affects things. Uh, this was one of the first... Uh, handicapping uh, approaches that I was taught when it comes to March Madness that you definitely have to look at teams traveling and the distance they have to travel because let's face it when the committee chooses and puts the placement of the brackets a lot of these teams when we look at it we say they got an unfair seating or they have to travel all the way across country while another team doesn't even have to travel but 100 miles. And it plays, it's a huge role, especially with a lot of these schools that aren't used to traveling. They play in these conferences where your biggest road game is only 200 miles away. And, and many of these teams don't even travel by plane to a lot of these conference games. And now all of a sudden, they have to fly from the East Coast to the West Coast. You have a time difference. You're staying in hotels, something you're not used to. And, you know, you're, you're playing in a gym you're unfamiliar with. And I think it, it, you definitely have to look at the teams that are take, having to travel the furthest are at the biggest disadvantage. And we can't forget, it's also harder for their 
fans to travel with them. It's easier to have your fans come and see you when you're only 200 miles away and they could drive there than when they have to plan to fly out there. Okay, so this actually brings up the flip side, which is hidden home court advantage. This is something we've been talking a lot about on the forums. Uh, there was a blog written about, actually, remember, you can go to pregame.com and click forums and join the discussion, or you can read the blogs, go to pregame.com and, and uh, click blogs. Is There's really a spectrum here. On one hand, you got the team that has to travel very far, and they're at a big disadvantage, and then you have teams that don't have to travel hardly at all and actually have a home court advantage. To me, the key issue is, is that home court advantage obvious? If it is obvious, like anything else, the lines maker and the betting public is going to take it into account. But if you can find a situation where there's a home court advantage, usually it's going to be a fan advantage where they have a, a bigger percentage of the fans. But sometimes the, the teams have actually played in the arena, which is actually a home court advantage because they're going to be more familiar with it if they play during the regular season. If you can identify those the public hasn't identified, there's a real value there. Yeah, I think it's hard to sneak anything by the Las Vegas uh, lines makers. They're going to build the. See, the, I disagree with that totally. I, I think that the. I mean, if that's the case, then it's then you might as well not bet. I mean, the key is how do you identify things that we are seeing that they're not? And again, it's not easy. I agree with you a hundred percent. But I think with a hidden home court, I know a couple of years ago there was a better here in town that really pounded. I mean, literally ten times a game on a couple games a year with the hidden home court because he believed that they always undervalued that. Now, I think lately I hear a lot more discussion about the hidden home court, and I think it's been considered even more. Well, that was the only point that I was making is I, I don't think it's as big of a value as it used to be that Vegas is on top of everything and with the smaller schools. And, you know, it's more the, the advantages there are the big schools – that have a big arena in their city, but there's a there's a bigger complex that they might play at that the advantage is if they play there once or twice during the year and it's within the city limits. You know, a team that would be an example is uh, a home team like, you know, uh, say Villanova, you know, from Philadelphia. You know, they play in the Palestra and stuff and they have the smaller schools or Temple and that, but then they might play a game at, you know, back of your days, uh, the Spectrum. Sure. You know, they might play one or two games there when it was a big game during the regular season. So that would give them an advantage for the shooting style and know the, the situation. And that's an example where it's more obvious and probably accounted for, but your point, I think, is not only is the crowd going to be there, but the, they're familiar with the arena, so it may be a double advantage that's not fully accounted for. I think where the, where the real hidden advantage is, is games that might be three, four, five hundred miles away when there's a small school with a rabid fan base that's going to make that drive. And especially, and this can be, I mean, literally, I could write a seven, eight page paper on this, and maybe I will one day, is there's so many different factors. Who's the other teams on the ticket? How motivated are their fans? And is it going to be easy for the rabid fans to get the tickets? Is, you know, who's going to win the first round? And then in the second round, they're playing at the same site. If a popular team, loses there's going to be a lot of tickets sold very cheap the ticket dynamics really affect that that crowd too and it's a very subtle measure uh it's nuanced and if you're able to judge that you it's at a level the lines makers really not looking at that i I totally agree with that and i see it all the time and you're right when certain situations are obvious we know that team plays in that city and that you're not going to find an edge in especially as in March Madness with these games so magnified but I agree with with RJ 
that there are some of these smaller schools that are so happy to be in March Madness. It's such a big deal for that community. And they're playing three, 400 miles even away. And they're going to travel while you ha- they're playing a big-name school and they might be playing in Idaho and it's an East Coast team. Their fans aren't going to travel. If anything, they're already looking ahead and saying, we'll meet up with them in the Sweet 16. So I think there you'll get not a, not a home court edge, but I think a home fan edge, which makes your surroundings more comfortable and makes the other team more uncomfortable. And Agreed. Okay, moving on. Tempo. This is a concept, to be honest with you, that I've never really had a great feel for. And, and lately I've been hearing more and more talk about tempo. Uh, Vegas Runner, and you've been the one leading the charge with the talk. Tell us a little bit about tempo in the NCAA tournament. I live for this this statistic when it comes to March Madness because what happens is during your conference year, during the season, you play a certain style of basketball, and it's easy for you to dictate your style of play, much simpler than when it's in March Madness and you're playing against much bigger and better schools. I mean, some of these schools nowadays playing this zone defense, you know, no longer they, the smaller conferences have all switched going to man, the man trying to show, you know, they're more aggressive. They're playing man pro ball. And then they end up playing these schools that have these complicated zone defenses and they're at a loss and you see, they can't play the tempo style they want to play. Then the other problem is what happens with some of these schools, your smaller school from a smaller conference that loves to run their style is running, but now they're facing Kansas. You're not going to beat Kansas running. So now you have to play a totally different style of basketball if you even want a chance to compete. Okay, so what I'm hearing is, and again, I, I still have trouble wrapping my mind around it, each team has a preferred way to play. If they can enforce their will on the other team, they're going to play in their comfort zone. If they're forced to play another way, they're not so comfortable with it. Here's the question. What dictates if a team is able to exert their influence and play the tempo they want, or are they being forced to play an unfamiliar tempo? What usually is the deciding factors in that? I think it's the coach. How he, his game plan going in. How are we going to... But isn't every team going to try to play the tempo they're most comfortable with? No, no, I don't think so. I think you got to play up to your opponent. If, if I play a fast tempo in my small conference and I'm playing in the Patriot League, and I love to run and have 100 possessions, yeah, that works when I'm playing American. That works when I'm playing Liberty. But I can't go up against Kansas, who has the quickest players I'm ever going to face. I can't run them up and down the court and be successful and tire them out. Okay, so what I'm hearing now is the better team is able to dictate tempo, and then the question becomes is, is the tempo for the better team the same tempo as the weaker team? If so, then, then the weaker team's playing in the tempo they're comfortable with. But if it's a different tempo, they're going to have to be, they're going to be forced to play a different way. Right. And many times you see a, a, the coaches go in and they have to change the style of play. They slow it down. They four passes before I see a shot that, you know, they go in knowing that they have to slow this game down. So they're going to change their style of play, which other, is a big disadvantage. Exactly. But it's still, you're even, you put yourself even at a more disadvantage if you try to play a style you're comfortable at although you're you're up against an opponent who's more talented than you and plays that same style okay so really what we're saying is the 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 situation which is the worst is if you're forced 
if you're the weaker team and you're forced to play a tempo you're not comfortable with, that's that's a bad situation. If but but what about the situations where both teams like the same tempo? Uh, let's say it's fast. You're saying that's a disadvantage for the weaker team. Yeah, absolutely. I I look at it as as a huge disadvantage because I have the better so the, athletes. So the weak so the weaker team is a dis at a disadvantage no matter what. At, I'm the weaker team, and if they they want to play the same tempo as me, I'm at a disadvantage. If they want to play a different tempo than me, I'm at a disadvantage. Well, if, if you're which which disadvantage is big? If you're the worst, if you're the 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 weaker team, you're going to be at a disadvantage. But the point spread tells us you're at a disadvantage exactly, but, heading in. But when does the tempo make it a bigger or lesser disadvantage? I think. Let me jump in a second here. What I'm hearing VR say, and I agree with, if both teams like an up tempo, the athletes are going to prevail. You you know you can be your comfort zone. I understand that. Okay, so. so that's the advantage. But where the disadvantage is, that's the advantage for the better team. That's the advantage for the okay. better team. I think that a team that plays the opposite style, that the weaker team has a better shot of getting their style into play if it's the opposite, like a team that's a slowdown team. That's exactly. You can have, and again, and I'll show my age, but I'm going to go back to years in, in the conference, in the NCAA, you bring a Princeton, Princeton team in here. They would frustrate you. You can push the ball up the court all you want on offense. If that's what you want to do, you can do that. But if you come up and you miss that first shot, and they grab the rebound, it's now their their tempo. They're going to slow it down. You can't make them go faster when they want to go slower. So every time you come up and shoot fast and miss and they grab the rebound, they're controlling okay, the tempo. Okay, so, so what we're saying is the better team doesn't dictate the tempo. In a situation, it you know, it, it can happen. If they're both the same style. I'm not style, sure what that means. It can happen. I mean, I, that's, I want to drill down okay. and understand If this. both teams play the same style, advantage goes to the better, te- the better program. They've got the better horses, the better athletes. When they're contrary styles, I feel that the team that has the slow down approach has a better shot to slow a game down than a team that has a fast approach speeding the can game up. Can get somebody up. to run. Okay, so now let's think about this then. So you're saying then that – the one situation that makes the most sense is when the weaker team slows a game down and the stronger team wants to play fast, the weaker team can actually have less of a disadvantage than you, than you would think based upon the relative strengths of the team. If the two teams both want to go slow or both want to go fast, then, then the physicality of the better team prevails. If the weaker team wants to run and the, the better team wants to slow it down, the weaker team's going to have trouble running. Absolutely. So there's only one time then the weaker team has more of an advantage because of tempo, and that's when they want to go slow and the better team wants to go fast. And that that the slow is their natural, okay, you know, format. All right. So that's the so we want to find those teams, and that's where tempo is an advantage for the weaker team. Yeah, and and the other thing that I've noticed is the home and road dichotomy of pace. Teams, if you break down teams and you see their pace at home and their pace on the road for some of these clubs there is a huge difference and heading into March Madness you can pinpoint them differences teams that were able to play their style in their gym in their surroundings in their comfort zone but get them outside of them surroundings and all of a sudden they can't play their style of ball and once that happens again 
Your opponent dictates the tempo, dictates the style, and that puts you in trouble. You look at some of these teams that like to press. Yeah, I love to press the whole 96 feet, but how you can't press on certain teams. You have to score to press. If you ain't scoring, you, the press won't work. Right. So that's where I think styles and tempos, because once again, when you look, talk about March Madness, these teams aren't familiar with each other. Michigan State knows how the Ohio State's going to play them every time. There's no questions of how we're going to play when we meet each other. But now, of a sudden, how's Alabama State going to play when they meet Memphis? There you have some question marks, and it's, you know, going in. Okay, so let's, we, we've shifted to the road game. So, in a way, the statement can be made that, that tournament games are road games. So how is it, Marco, that you look at the stats during the season? Do you look just at road games? Or do you just wait the road games more? How do you handle it? I'll look at what they do in, in the road games, but I don't put as much emphasis on them as Vegas Runner does. Uh, I'm a current form type guy, and I'm a but, big— But you do, you do take the road games uh, as, as more applicable than home games, right? Absolutely. Uh, and you just I'll, don't weight it as extremely as Vegas As extremely. Just, I put more weight in on how the previous game was played out. Uh, I go from game to game, and that's why you know I'll know on you know the Thursday round when it's over, if I'm going to have a big game on Saturday round because of things that happened on the Thursday games. Okay, so Vegas Runner, since you're the strongest proponent of really focusing on the road games, talk about that a little bit. Well, absolutely, because now, like you said, every game in March Madness is a road game, okay? Like a few teams have a little home edge, but bottom line is you're playing on the road. So I think you really have to wait how they've done on the road because especially in basketball where teams go – 18 and 0 at home, you know, and, and and don't end up making the the March Madness because they can't win on the road. I think you have to put a lot of weight on the road and especially defensively. That's the biggest the, the biggest difference I saw is on the defensive end. Mo, many would think it's offensively that you'll shoot better at home than you would on the road. I believe the bigger difference is defensively. Some teams are feel they could be more aggressive at home. They won't get called with as many fouls as they do as they on the road. And they're forced to play a different style. And when you break down these teams, you will see a big difference on how they perform defensively at home compared to how they perform on the road. And to me, going into March Madness, road is 90%. What they did at home means very little. And, and I, for the most part, I agree with. I probably fall in the middle with you too with that. Okay, so let's talk about. And this is, uh, you know, we're going over the stuff we're sure of, and we're actually digging into the stuff there's some disagreements about. And that's one thing I really enjoy because at the end of these podcasts, I understand this stuff better than I did entering it. And that's all we can hope for for the listeners too. Yeah, and so many times I've you've opened my eyes, and Marco's done the same with something where I you help me see something in a clearer light. And you're right, you're going to handicap differently. Especially when I tell you about a, a new dish to order at the diner. <laughs> okay. That's, that's one of my expertise. He's the best. He's the best. You just tell him order. <laughs> just give him the green light. Okay. Let's talk about the way that as the tournament progresses, you can learn from the tournament itself. I think one thing that's a, a real no-brainer here for something that's simple and strong, it's teams that win and cover. Clearly, you're going to win if you advance. But if you win and cover – 
they're backed increasingly as the tournament progresses because people, real live people, have won money on them and they're going to look more attractive the next game and then the next game. And it's a pretty good system that if you take all the teams that were 2-0 and ATS the first two games and if they're playing anyone that was 0-2 ATS, that's a real, you got a team in that case that everyone's loving versus a team everyone's unhappy with because they've been losing money on them. So in general, I think you could say if you're winning ATS, the public's falling in love with you. Uh, because, again, this is a very public tournament, and a lot of bettors only are watching these specific games. And if you're, if you're winning but not covering, people are getting disenchanted with you. Any thoughts on that? Well, this is one of my favorite situations in uh, handicapping the tournaments. I love a team that just gets by and, and doesn't cover. Um, well, I've you know, used the phrase win ugly because the public does you know, get disenchanted with that team. Vegas, you know adjust the line because you know they didn't cover the previous tariff in the last game so they're going to adjust the line for the next game so now you're getting value on the line you're giving the coach his motivational speech he can drill this team he's like you know hey you know what were you guys doing you slept walk through that game and he has the opportunity to drill a team how can you drill your team when they win by 25 points you know you have the opportunity for them to be lackadaisical in their next outing even though the stakes are so high it's human nature you come off a, a monster win you know you might go on cruise control in the next game any quick thoughts on that, VR? I think this all goes back to how you started this podcast with these lines are aimed towards the public better, and the public better is going to follow the teams that are cashing them tickets, although the odds makers are going to adjust. And just like you said, when a team covers two times in a row, he's going to be forced to make you pay a premium for teams like that. So I think you're right. You have to look at teams that are still in there although they haven't been covering as possible go-with teams. Agreed. Okay, let's talk about conferences. How do the conferences themselves affect the way we look at these games? Uh, let's talk about the small conferences first because you get a lot of this, these teams from the non, not even the mid-majors, the, uh, below that, that are playing, and oftentimes the lines are not you know, double digits. To me, one of the keys is how did these teams play when they did play teams from the BCS conferences, it might only be two two games, one game, three games. But how did they play in that game? And following Marco's situational analysis, be honest about the situation. Were they at a big disadvantage? Were they playing after a long travel? And, and, and judge the games honestly. But your ability to beat up on teams in a small conference is not the same as playing the big boys. And oftentimes you'll see a team that just got dominated by the big boys and then you see the flip side they play the big boys tight but those couple games i think deserve extra focus on the small conference teams any thoughts uh absolutely and to add to what you're saying is look at those games are going to happen back in december when if, if they did play a big school they might have got blown out but look at that team over the course of the year if that was a young team that got better as the season progressed you may have extra value with that team now because people are just going to go back and say well when they played so and so they lost by 20 points but this team may be a much better team they might have gotten more experience later in the year 
see, it's funny because Marco is is one of the most knowledgeable guys I've ever met, and I've been in Vegas eleven years uh, when it comes to handicapping. But I just disagree with what you're saying there. And and again, that's one of the beauties of this podcast is. If we're saying that the only real gauge we have is how they play versus those big teams, uh, big conference teams, then I don't think that's a time to gain value from a, a loss unless it's a deceiving loss. If they just get the shit kicked out of them, and we won't bleep that, <laughs> then if they do, then the question becomes, does it tell, is it more that the public is going to then undervalue that team? Or is it that we learn something about that team that they're not any good? Well, I think the point that you missed there is that I said if the team showed improvement on the season in but, their but own they w- com- in their they own they wouldn't have had another chance to play a big team so we don't know how good they got we don't but you don't they're not as bad as they may not be as bad as they looked in that game and, and what's the indication of that well that's what i'm saying if the team improved during the course of the season you got to expect that they are better than they were when they played that team in december that they got the as you said the shit kicked out of them if that team after that loss, went on and won 20 games and, and even kill season, then, yeah, they were as good as they were and are probably going to get the shit kicked out of them a second time. But if that team was mediocre at the beginning of their conference schedule but come on strong later in the year, they're gaining experience. It's okay. a young team getting stronger as the players get experience. Okay, so I, I think that Marco's point is valid, which is, and it applies not only, it applies to every team, is if a team has a bad show early and then they improve you got to take that late season stuff serious and I agree no matter who they played early that's the case you know take the late season more seriously is the way to say that and I agree with that what I'm saying though if it's a small conference whenever they play them you have to weight their games heavier when they play a big conference and there may be a time that they did get killed and you have to weight that game heavy but they improved a lot and now you're kind of lost you don't know what the truth is but specifically if you see a team play very well or very poorly against that big bigger conference team I think you have to wait it more. I agree because, I mean, how good could you feel going in playing North Carolina if you lost by 40 to Duke earlier in the season? You can't be walking in too confident. So I agree there. Um, you know, that's just one of those instances where the better school playing the, the, the real bad school, and it's going to be like that every March Madness. And, and sometimes the opposite is this team played very well against the big school. Okay, second thing about the conferences, and this is a great point, I think. You can gauge the strength of the conferences as the tournaments progress. We talked about this in the College Bowl How to Handicap podcast, is once the bowl season progresses, um, you can get a sense of how this conference is doing against teams from out of their conference. Same thing as the rounds progress with March Madness. Certain um, conferences are going to do well. Certain conferences are going to do poorly. And then the teams that did well in those conferences that do well in the conf- in the March Madness, you got a highly value and vice versa. Any thoughts on that? There's no question that certain conferences are going to get the public's, you know, they're going to be in favor with the public. I mean, everybody always loves the ACC, the SEC. Those are always the power conferences. The Big East traditionally is a power conference in basketball. So you're going to pay a premium for those teams when they're playing somebody from any other conference, I feel. And you couldn't have value looking for the going against those schools and take the extra line value. 
Okay, and, 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 and those, to me that's a side point, and I think it's a valid one, is most marquee teams come from marquee conferences, and people treat those conferences with more respect. Uh, Vegas Runner, do you have any thoughts specifically to my point, which is as the tor- tournament progresses, you can gauge the strength of the conferences and thus look at teams a little bit differently? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because you go in with a perception of what the strength of this conference is, especially when they now we always have them challenges Big Ten versus ACC and what happened during the season we we make that decision we we come to the conclusion that the ACC is more powerful they went 10 and 1 during that challenge and I think you're right after the first weekend of March Madness you have a much clearer picture of whether that conclusion was valid and is that a power conference all right, moving on. Let's talk about we we have you know decades of history with March Madness, the NCAA tournament. Let's talk about some factors that mathematically have really mattered. One of them that you don't hear a lot about is margin of victory. This is you take how many points this team won by when you add up all the results, and it's it's actually if you do the mathematics doubly predictive it's double as predictive as any other measure if you want to say how well is this team going to do in march madness you look at margin of victory and it will tell you more than anything else and one of the reasons for that is that the flukiness of the season that last three pointer that you either make or don't make doesn't really matter that much it's only three extra points and yes some teams are going to get blown out some teams are going to blow teams out but that all evens out mostly in the end if you take margin of victory with strength of schedule those two things will really tell you how good a team is and it's very predictive and that's something i don't think people look at enough now Moving on to the next point, the experience factor. I think that, that, that Vegas Runner and Marco were making this point that both the coach and the team, the experience, now how do we measure that experience? Is by games played in the tournament. It's not about the guy's been coaching 25 years or it has a lot of seniors. How many times have these guys been to the tournament? Because it's an entirely different experience, this tournament. The way the games are set up, being on the road, all the different things that make March Madness unique. Any extra thoughts? We touched on it about coaching and the tournament. Well, for myself, I agree. This is the time of the year that you know you got to value the, the coach and have your power ratings reflect that. But the coach, based upon his tournament experience. Absolutely. That's pretty much the only way you have facts that you could go by. You know, everything else is just an idea. It's just a theory. But the facts is, the good thing is, like you said, there's been so many March Madnesses. We do have a history, especially with a, a lot of these coaches, we have a history of how they've performed in this type of situation. One thing that whenever you have a coach that you don't have a history and you're trying to you know, make an educated guess of how he's going to perform is you, you look at his pedigree. Where did he come from? Who who did he come up under? And and I'll give it a, a perfect example of that is Jamie Dixon is a coach that came up under Ben Holland. He was the assistant for Ben Holland when he was at, at Pitt. And Ben Holland, we know how good of a coach he is. You know, he came from a small school, had a great program there, you know, Division 1A, took over the pit program, put the pit program back on the map. 
Jamie Dixon picked that program up and continued with it in his, you know, because he had pedigree, had tournament experience, and hasn't missed a beat. So look at pedigree with different coaches. Specifically with those without the experience. But, right. But, and, and again, you can gain experience as an assistant to some degree. That's a good point. So there's really two issues. How much experience and then how, when they do have experience, is it good or is it is it poor performing experience? <laughs> yeah, because, just because you've been there 10 times, if you've lost in the first round all 10 times does it you have experience but not winning experience okay the last factor for me on the ncaa tournament is you want to focus on teams which can score inside outside shooting is very difficult in the ncaa tournaments mostly because of the nerves teams get nervous this is that biggest stage and and a jumper is all about being in flow and nervousness can really hurt an outside shooting team and as we talked about, the big unfamiliar arenas are a big disadvantage for outside shooting teams. You want to really have a bias towards uh, teams that, that can score inside. Any thoughts on that or any closing thoughts on factors we haven't touched on? I have one, and it's kind of a great segue. You set it up there about the inside. One thing that I find, and this is more so in the first round game than any other in the NCAA tournament, if you have a team that – they have one primary player and you know, generally it's going to be a big center and you know he might be a seven footer or a shot blocker be careful with these type of teams in the first round because these as you said nerves are a factor and generally speaking what i have found in my experience if a team is nervous or really pumped up that's when you get into foul trouble. You might have a guy that's all pumped up, your seven-footer, your shot blocker, and he goes in there and picks up two quick fouls, and they got to set him down for a seven, eight, nine-minute stretch in the first half, and you're laying a big number. That's a point that you got to look at with a team that has one player that's a bulk of their scoring. Good point, good point. Okay, Vegas Runner, any other thoughts? Yeah, I agree there as well. You definitely need a big man. We all talk about how you need strong guard play in March Madness, and usually strong guard play and senior leadership will take you so far, but I think to cut down the nets, you need an inside presence for sure. Definitely, especially in them big games, that last final game, you got to be able to get the ball inside, because like RJ said, your shooting touch isn't always there, and as the nervousness increases, the shooting from the outside gets even more difficult, so you're going to need to have that big man to lean on. Now let's define... Guard, I, I agree, guard play is important, but I think it's more important with handling, being able to handle the ball. And, and really, think about it. For guards, there's two issues, handle the ball and shoot School, the ball. Yeah. And, and my point is that I need a guard that, when nervous, is not going to be getting his pocket picked and is going to be able to get the ball inside. So guard play is important, but I think that, that the jump shooting teams are the ones with bigger tr- that have trouble. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. When it comes to the, your guard, you want your point guard being that leader, that, that general. So, of course, if he's a senior, all the better. Okay, now we're going to shift gears very quickly and spend three minutes on the NIT and the other alternative tournaments, uh, or alternative might not be the right word, but let's say non-NCAA tournaments. <laughs> I have a couple points, and I think you can really keep it this simple. So I'm just going to kind of uh, go one by one real quick and then let uh, Marco and Vegas Runner jump in. I think it, uh, the main point times 10 is motivation. Is is this team happy to be in this tournament? It's just like the college bowls. Some teams are not happy to be there, and they're not going to play well. And to me, that's the issue. If you can handicap motivation, you've got it. One caveat, 
as the tournaments progress, motivation becomes less of a factor. Once you get to the third round, now you can see the championship and you care. Round one, round two, motivation matters by far the most. Any thoughts? I I I agree totally, RJ. Because in, when you're talking about the big one, the, the NCAA, everybody's excited, everyone's motivated. It's the big dance. How can you not be? But as far as the NIT, like it, for some of these teams, it's a disappointment. I mean, they're disappointed, and now they've just played two, three days ago, and now they got to get up and play again, and they want to be in the big one. So I, I agree there. The first two rounds of the NIT and all these other tournaments that are going on other than the big one is the biggest edge you're going to find is if you're able to locate to pinpoint motivation actually and and determine which team really wants to play any fresh thoughts on that mark there's two ways to determine which kind of that motivation is there's the team that got slighted by the NCAA that team's got a chip on the shoulder and they can make a deep run in this to show that hey you guys should have had us in the other tournament the other kind of motivation is the letdown one and what I will look for is a team that got to the championship game and had it in their grasp to go to the big dance in the conference tournament in the conference tournament and lost the championship game and was relegated to the NIT they were the their own victim they can't blame the, the committee it was in their hands they screwed it up those teams could be disenchanted with being in the NIT. Now, to me, the slighted teams fall into two categories. If you're slighted from a big conference, there is no chip on your shoulder. You're just disappointed. If you're a mid-major who's slighted, you want to show them that they're wrong. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. There's more motivation there. Okay. To me, two other points. Um, Some of these games, in most of these games until the Final Four uh, of the smaller tournaments are played at the conference uh, sites themselves, or excuse me, at the team sites themselves, is the students oftentimes are on spring break during these games, and you really want to know if they're on spring break because it's really going to affect the crowd. And you'll see some of these games that the the gym's half empty because the teams are on uh, the schools are on spring break. You you want to know that, and that's the kind of stuff. It's hard to know everything yourself. Places like the forums at pregame.com can really help because people are discussing that. Number two is if you are playing on the road a good bit. Um, because you are, let's say, one of the lesser seeds in these tournaments. You have to play two or three straight road games. The travel sometimes can be massive, literally across country without very much rest. So keep an eye on back-to-back road games and the travel associated with it. Okay, any other thoughts about the uh, non-NCAA tournament? I think you covered it pretty good right Pretty good, sir. All right, excellent. Okay, now we're wrapping up. This has been a great podcast, and you can check all of our podcasts out at pregamepodcast.com, and each time of the year we'll be doing these How to Handicaps, and this has been How to Handicap the NCAA Tournaments.